Hello, welcome to the Firefly podcast. This podcast has been adapted from the Understanding Cerebral Palsy webinar. If you would like to watch the full webinar, you can go to our YouTube channel. This is hosted by Claire Smith. She chats to Nick Mant, physiotherapist from Flying Start Children's Therapy, Becca Toll, special needs mum to Brielle, Don Hamilton, special needs mum to Emmy, and Holly Nam, family engagement coordinator of the Family Fund. So grab a cuppa and sit back and enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to our webinar on understanding cerebral palsy. My name is Claire Smith and I will be your host. During today's webinar, Nick will give you an overview of cerebral palsy, how it is diagnosed and the various types of CP. We will also hear about some of the medical interventions that may be recommended by medics and give you a brief overview of the equipment that your child may require throughout their CP journey. We will hear from Becca and Dawn who will share their experiences of receiving a diagnosis, treatments they have tried and everyday life as a special needs mum. And finally we will hear from Holly who is going to tell us a little bit about the Family Fund charity here in the UK and the opportunities they provide for families. Throughout the webinar you can type any questions you might have regarding CP and we will try to answer as many as we can at the end. I'm now going to pass you on to Nick who will talk you through the learning objectives of his section of the webinar. Nick, over to you. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, so it's Nick here, and we'll start off by talking about the, um, the learning objectives. So exactly what I'm going to be talking about. <clears throat> and as um, Claire said, it's to define cerebral palsy and how it's diagnosed. Um, so we'll look at the long wordy def um, definition and then um, look at it in real terms to discuss the different distributions and classifications of cerebral palsy, so the terminology around that, to look at early interventions and what we aim at in the early parts of um, physiotherapy treatment, and then the long-term goals um, of how we look at these children as they reach into their teens. Uh, we'll look at some of the common equipment used with cerebral palsy quite briefly, and then we'll discuss some of the medical interventions um, that you might go through. So what is cerebral palsy? The long definition that if you Google cerebral palsy, Rosenbaum is a, a quite, did a big study back in um, 2000 and something or other, and this was the long definition that they came up with. The problem is it doesn't really explain it to parents. Um, if you've not got any medical training, a lot of those words are quite confusing. So we simplify it onto the next slide. So it's an umbrella term <clears throat> that is uh, permanent but not unchanging um, with, with children. It involves a disorder of movement and or posture of motor function. So all children with cerebral palsy have a difficulty with their motor function. It's due to non-progressive interference, lesion or abnormality in the immature brain. So that damage in the brain occurs either during pregnancy or very shortly after. CP is primarily a movement disorder, effect disorder, affecting muscle tone of a child. So we'll talk about what muscle tone is in a bit, but all children with CP will have a movement disorder of some sort. Um, as conditions go, it's one of the more common. Um, it's one in 400 live births internationally. Although CP is primarily a movement disorder, you can have single or multiple associated difficulties. So some children will have none of these, some will have all. So these include feeding difficulties, whether that's due to the actual motor control of the, um, of the mouth, the chewing and swallowing mechanism, or due to poor posture, making it difficult to swallow. Um, they often have learning difficulties because the brain has been um, damaged as part of the cerebral palsy uh, mechanism. They often have behavioral difficulties and autism. So in the general population, autism occurs at approximately 1% within the general population. Um, within the cerebral palsy population, it occurs approximately 7%. 
Um, children with CP often have visual problems um, and can have hearing problems as well. They often have sensory processing difficulties, whether this be because of the actual way that the brain processes sensory information, so touch, sight, sound, those sorts of things, or it could be from the lack of opportunity to experience new sensory um, uh, to experience new senses when they are young and developing so that when they're older they then struggle to manage them. They often have seizures because as we say the brain has been affected. The dental problems that occur are often due to the abnormal muscles within the um, abnormal tone within muscles in the mouth pulling the teeth in different directions so they can have actual malalignment of their teeth um, and also because they haven't necessarily been chewing and swallowing um, typically as, as they're developing you know from that six month weaning stage onwards. Um, they often have digestive and respiratory issues. These are often later on in life um, and are down to abnormal postures that the children have adopted. So they might be um, leaning to the side or with scoliosis that affects their actual digestive tract or respiratory function. So what is CP in real terms? It's that umbrella term. Um, and it affects children in a variety of ways. So you can have really, really mild CP, which isn't picked up in a child until they're, you know, seven to 10. Um, I've had a child referred to me in the past who was um, eight, I believe, and he was referred with a stiff ankle and ended up being quite a mild CP. Um, and then to the other end of that spectrum where there is very severe conditions with lots and lots of associated um, conditions as well. It's Although it's described as non-progressive, so the cerebral palsy itself, the damage to the brain is non-progressive, it's unchanging. However, the effects that that has on the muscle presents different challenges at different times in a person's life. So um, as they're growing, um, often difficult, different challenges crop up. Um, it has a variety of associated difficulties, which must be taken into account at all times by the therapists, by the um, medics and by parents. Um, and it really, for the therapists, it, they really have to take this into account when planning treatment. Due to the um, breadth of complications that are involved, families have a huge number of professionals involved, um, which includes all, all therapies, physio, occupational and speech and language therapy, um, the medics that are involved, social workers, orthotists, all sorts of different doctors. Hopefully, with that huge number of professionals involved, you will have a paediatrician at the centre of the care. Cool. Moving on to causes. More, more often than not, the cause of cerebral palsy is not known. Um, there's a lot of um, other, uh, there's a lot of things that we can partially attribute it to, but more often than not, the actual cause of CP is not known. But it's often believed that CP was due to low oxygen sustained in the baby during um, a complicated birth. That was the old sort of thought. Um, however, that's more rare. It's more often than not, it is not down to low oxygen or a complicated birth. In fact, what's more considered now is that the complicated birth is down to the child not taking part because they have already sustained that damage in the brain. So during labor, a baby will push off, will kick to try and assist the um, exiting process um, but if they've had that damage to the brain already then they might not do that which causes a difficult and prolonged labor it's not always the case but that's generally the uh, the view now the widely held belief for causes are periventricular leukomalacia which is shortened to pvl abnormal development of the brain stroke either during or shortly after birth and damage to the brain immediately after birth so let's look at those in a little bit more detail so pvl or periventricular leukomalacia it's quite common in prematurity um, and it can be seen on medical imaging. It's damage to the white matter in the, uh, in the, within the brain, which is all the nerves that fire and 
communicate across the brain, they're held within the white matter. So if there's damage there, then it will interrupt those signals being sent. Um, the early signs of periventricular leukomalacia can appear on an ultrasound scan as little white dots. Um, sometimes these will progress to um, the actual cysts, which is what periventricular leukomalacia is. Um, sometimes they're not. So what will often happen if those early signs are picked up in the early scans in prematurity, a baby will often be rescanned later on to check whether they've progressed. Um, not entirely sure why it occurs, but it's often due to infection. The abnormal brain development itself, so as the brain is developing within the womb, it can do this incorrectly, whether it's down to a genetic change, again, infection during pregnancy or trauma during pregnancy. Um, and this can cause changes such as, so the brain is in two halves. Um, and if that central sort of divide doesn't form, that's a condition which can lead to cerebral palsy um, or just other genetic changes. The stroke is another cause and the stroke can be either um, due to a bleed within the brain which is a hemorrhagic stroke or lack of blood to an area of the brain which is called an ischemic stroke so um, ischemia is uh, cell death so in prematurity intraventricular uh, hemorrhage so the intraventricular bit is where in the brain and the leukomalacia on the previous slide is basically cysts hemorrhage is basically a bleed so nice long words for what could be quite easily simplified so interventricular hemorrhage is down to um the very very delicate blood vessels around the structures in the brain called the ventricles um when a premature baby is born they're very very delicate and can bleed and it's graded between one and four the um, grades two, uh, grades three and four are the more serious bleeds, which um, standard will be followed up by therapists as well as consultants. Um, but saying that, although there's a high risk of these bleeds leading to cerebral palsy, not all of them do. So I have seen children in the past with grade four interventricular hemorrhage who has not developed cerebral palsy. So the, a lot of these things are risk factors and not definite diagnoses. Um, other things that can lead to an unborn child's stroke would be problems with the mother's, mother's placenta. So the actual um, the baby not receiving enough um, nutrients through the placenta. Again, infection. Um, typically uh, urine infections for parents. I think this is a high risk for stroke. Um, multiple pregnancies, so twins or triplets have a high risk of um, having a stroke in birth. Um, whether this is due to twin to twin transfusion or loss of the twin during the pregnancy itself can often cause problems with the surviving twin. Um, and damage to the brain during immediate or immediately after birth are those complications, um, the prolonged labors, the cord wrapped around the, the um, the neck of the baby that they've struggled to get out or breach presentation that hasn't come that hasn't um, progressed well or back to back that hasn't progressed well anything that can cause the baby to have too much stress if um, doctors are concerned that a hypoxic event has occurred so a low oxygen event has occurred and they think that ischemic changes so cell death changes have happened then they will often send a baby for head cooling so this is only done if babies are 36 weeks um, gestation or later because any earlier than that then the cooling itself um, is there's a high risk of it causing more damage to the baby so actual death to the baby um, but the 36 weeks they can survive the temperature changes more and it's basically putting the baby in a hypothermic state um, and so damage to the brain is halted 
because the body doesn't react by sending all of the um, normal cells and the normal um, repairing mechanism. And so then the swelling doesn't occur in the brain, so the damage doesn't isn't worsened. This the the head cooling is is what's generally attributed to much improved um, survival rates for complicated births, and is also what's attributed to less um, what would have been very complex cerebral palsy in the past being less complex. So maybe a quadriplegic baby in the past with this damage, maybe a baby in the past would have had a quadriplegic cerebral palsy. They go through head cooling, and they might now be diplegic or a baby that would have been hemiplegic with the head cooling now doesn't actually have any cerebral palsy so it's it's a huge um, medical advancement that's that's helped with babies with this sort of um, brain damage moving on to diagnosis i hope i'm not talking too quickly um, but moving on to diagnosis it can be quite difficult um, and it can happen later it depends it can often depend on the area that you're in on how um, how it's diagnosed and the consultants that make that are making the diagnosis. Um, if they're a progressive forward-thinking consultant, then they will take into account the, um, the opinions of their team. If not, then they will wait for just medical imaging and they will only make a diagnosis through medical imaging, which can be a problem because not all babies with CP will have changes to their brain scan. So if you're relying on medical imaging, then it might not give you a diagnosis. However, um, Diagnosis can be made just by looking at a child's birth history, how they are currently presenting, and then the findings, the objective findings of um, a multidisciplinary team. Generally speaking, um, physiotherapists are well placed to aid this diagnosis because they are more more um, specialist at feeling muscles and feeling how a tone has changed for these children. Um, before diagnosis is made, it's important to rule out any other conditions. So often children will be sent to um, genetics to rule out any genetic um, causes of their abnormal tone. Um, but uh, what else can we rule out? Basically, we, we rule out any other diagnosis before um, offering a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And more frequently now, diagnosis is made early due to much more collaborative working. So working with multidisciplinary teams. So we can give a report, so a physiotherapist might give a report to a paediatrician who might look at that and think, right, that's cerebral palsy, rather than waiting until the child is two years old where the brain scan will be completed and for a more definitive diagnosis, if indeed there is any changes to the brain scan at all. So moving on to the different types of cerebral palsy, um, and when the diagnosis is made, it will use the distribution so where in the body the child is affected and the classification. So what type of cerebral palsy is actually um, present? It uses those two terms so that um, other professionals and using, using that diagnosis, you can build quite a good picture of how severe a child is. However, it doesn't take into account the associated difficulties as well. Those associated difficulties should be detailed in clinic notes and reports from paediatricians so you can have a diagnosis at the top with additional problems below that. Some consultants don't necessarily do that, um, but it is very useful for families when seeking, um, seeking support from other bodies like um, charities, for example. So what tone is? And physios, um, consultants, all, all professionals that work with children with cerebral palsy tend to be quite awful at actually explaining what tone is which is pretty rubbish because 
all children with cerebral palsy have altered tone and we'll mention oh yeah this is high tone this is low tone here and, and it's not fair on families who haven't necessarily had that explained so the proper definition is a state of partial contraction present in a muscle in a passive state so at rest how ready it is to fire um, and how resistant it is to a passive stretch so if i was to move your um, arm quickly if I was to extend your elbow so you're going from a bent to a straight position how much your bicep will resist that and that's basically how we test muscle tone we move it quickly in a stretch so um, what you'll often see physios do is taking the foot and quickly moving it back and that tests the tone of the calf muscle which is a muscle that will generally speaking have increased tone if a child has cerebral palsy there are certain muscle groups which are more likely to have um, increased tone the calf is one of those it's probably the most frequent one that we would see um, all children with cp have abnormal tone it's part of the diagnosis um, so high tone or spasticity is what it's generally called in um, medical sort of circles um, also called hypertonia so hyper being high um, and low tone is hypotonia but um, if a child only has hypotonia generally speaking it is not cerebral palsy that is causing this because um, there has to be an element of high tone as well um, some children with CP will have very tone so at times it will be high and uh, low or they might have low tone in one part of their body compared to high tone elsewhere Quite commonly, we see low tone in the trunk, so in the body. So the child might hold, struggle to hold themselves up and high tone in their arms and legs or legs. So onto the distribution. The common term, I need a drink first. The uh, common terminology over here at least is hemiplegia where it affects one side of the body, the nice image below. Um, diplegia is just your legs and quadriplegia, all four limbs. That's sort of the, the classic terminology, but more modern is coming through. And as Europe work together to try and help classify cerebral palsy and collate data to get us a better picture of how it's affecting populations, the terminology that should be used, but often isn't, is unilateral, which is your um, hemiplegia, because it obviously affects one side of your body, and your bilateral, which sums up your diplegics and your quadriplegics. Um, the bilateral is often more useful because olden day CP that was diplegic, their arms would barely be affected. Um, but with more um, progress through medi medical um, intervention being improved, now your what used to be quadriplegics present more like a diplegic because their arms aren't as affected. However, their arms are still affected. So when doing more complicated tasks, the tone in their arms will go up. So you can't really say they're quadriplegic because they use their arms quite functionally and quite well, but they're not diplegic because it's not just their legs that are affected. So now what we would say is bilateral cerebral palsy with legs affected more than arms. It's a bit more mouthy, but it's more easier to um, explain to people. So classification is what type of cerebral palsy there is. So that's how the cerebral palsy affects the muscle groups. Um, it's generally given um, some consultants and some um, medics are very good at picking up what type of cerebral palsy, but often they, it does take time and it takes a lot of handling to try and figure it out. Sometimes it's actually quite complicated uh, or quite difficult to pick up. So physiotherapists being 
having quite a lot of time with children compared to um, medics have time to have really have a good feel of the muscles they're also a bit more used to putting the children in different positions and feeling the muscles so we're quite well placed to help identify the classification there are three different types one of those types can be further broken down into two and as I said before, hypotonia in isolation is not thought to be cerebral palsy anymore. It's usually down to a syndrome is quite a common thing. So um, the most, the best known for that would be um, Down syndrome. They're, they, those children are generally hypotonic, so they're quite bendy and quite floppy. So the most common type of um, cerebral palsy is spastic cerebral palsy. Um, and that is the more preferred term rather than hypertonic. Um, and it is still a widely used term. Um, it's where the muscle tone in the um, limbs is persistently raised. So it rarely drops to that low tone, floppy state. It's generally held quite high tone when the child is awake. Generally speaking, um, if a child's asleep, their tone will drop. And that's true for everybody. Uh, another important thing for tone, um, it's present in everyone. So we all have a certain degree of muscle tone. And that varies between person to person. So um, I personally am relatively low tone. Uh, side of normal so I will slouch I will um, lean against walls and those are the type of people which are generally low tone the ones which you see that sit with a bolt upright posture or never seem to relax they are generally the people with on the normal scale are the, the high side of it so a person should not be atonic so without tone so if you're seeing in clinic notes they are um, without tone or things like that they've got it wrong because everyone has it um, if they have got atonia then we're very worried very worried um, so moving back onto this the spastic cerebral palsies will oh no back up uh, yeah so the movements that you'll see with um, spastic cerebral palsy are very stereotypical so they will be quite similar between one child and another so an arm you'll see that um, classic arm picture of a child with cerebral palsy their arm flexed and the wrist bent and the hand in a sort of bent position it's we can generally spot that type of um, position or that posture and know that a child will be a spastic cerebral palsy um, any sort of excitement will increase that tone so if a child tries to um, if a child comes up against gravity so it does more standing activities then their tone can increase um, children can present with abnormal tone and we will have to wait until they start starting to move up against gravity before we know how high how high it's going to be it's almost like a waiting game we know it we, we suspect it's going to be raised but it's not necessarily until they try standing activities that you'll actually see how high it is or see how severe it is um, but those sorts of activities will increase it um, extremes in temperature often increase it um, especially extreme cold sudden sounds sudden noises will often increase tone um, and music can be used so if it's calming relaxing music that might lower tone if it's fast-paced music it might increase it high tone uh, children with high tone in their muscles it's not they are not strong muscles so we often hear parents saying oh they're really strong in their legs and if that's using tone then it's not necessarily strength it's uncontrolled contraction so if you actually manage to get that child working against resistance so doing an exercise to I don't know push their leg away or stand up they might really really struggle to do that activity because the muscle itself is very very weak um, and then if they then what the child might then do is use their tone so they'll switch on because they'll try and tone will come up and they'll stand and they'll go oh look they're really strong and it's really quite hard to explain that that it's not strength per se it's it's uncontrolled contraction 
the medical management that we'll talk about later is generally quite good at managing spastic cerebral palsy because a lot of uh, because it is the more common form so we, we know the effects of it and it's also more um, consistent so it's always high so we know that a medication to lower it will help rather than being varied high low where the medication will help when their child's tone is high but it'll make it worse when the child's tone is low Next, we have dyskinetic cerebral palsy, which literally means abnormal movement, so dyskinesia. Um, it's divided into two further groups, um, and that's often how the diagnosis is given. So it will be given as either dystonic or atatoid rather than dyskinetic. But again, that depends on your consultant. And in truth, it doesn't really matter if the, if the, um, if the diagnosis is given as dyskinetic or dystonic or atatoid because they're all um, they're, they're treated in very similar ways um, medically. So dystonic cerebral palsy um, will present, and children, so their tone will range from very, very low to very, very high. And they will get in these extreme, um, and it's quite often quite distressing for people to see the postures that these children will get them in because they will be, you know, fully extended elbows to the point that the elbow is bending backwards, twisted all the way in or all the way out with the wrist fully extended and it just looks very, very uncomfortable. Um, and children get stuck in those positions. If with appropriate handling, you can often, what is described as break that pattern, so we can ease the wrist into a bent position and take that arm out of that stuck pattern. But then the tone underneath that then goes very low. So a child will will use that tone and be really, really rigid and stuck and up against gravity and holding their head maybe, and it might be pushed back, but then they're not doing it appropriately. So we try and help them into a more appropriate and a, and a more pleasant, comfortable standing position, but that tone then drops and they flop. And it's really quite, it can be quite hard to treat, quite, it can be quite hard to manage, and it can be quite distressing to see. Um, generally speaking, children with dystonia will, um, as they try and do something active, their tone will go up and then that will force them into those abnormal postures. So it's quite hard for a child, if they're sat, they might be reaching forward for a desired toy, which then that deliberate activity forces their tone, which sends their head backwards. So they want to go forwards and reach for a toy, but their head's then thrown backwards because of their abnormal tone. So it makes life really, really hard for them. So we need to think of ways to um, either normalize that tone or give them enough support that they're able to reach forward. Initially, when the child, children are young or dystonic children are young, they will do, they will adopt very, quite varied postures. So unlike the spastic cerebral palsy where their arms or their legs will all, generally speaking, go the same way, dystonic children will go in lots of different ways um, when they're young. They will be all, they will all be end range. So maximum bent arm or maximum straight arm, but they will vary. As they grow, they, the, ver the variety will reduce and they will generally head towards one type of posture. Um, and a good example of that is dystonic children that might use their tone or learn to use their tone to help keep their head up by having their arms twi fully straight, twisted and sitting on the back of their hands. And then that holds their head up, which is great if they want to look around, but pretty tough if they want to actually use their hand, because as soon as they use their arms, the tone drops and the head falls. So we need to start early on uh, helping them develop their trunk support so that they can actually use their hands and not rely on these postures. Persistent ad adoption of these postures as well will um, put joints at risk. So if they're always extending that elbow as hard as they can, then it puts the elbow joint at risk, bending too far backwards. 
Um, quite often the trunk tone is quite low in dystonic cerebral palsy um, and it's down to damage to the basal ganglia within the brain. So if you do have a, a scan, they might be able to spot that it's in that particular area. So you've got an increased risk of dystonic or athetoid CP because they're in the same place. So athetoid CP. I'm not sure if we've got the video working on this. We had, it's quite hard to describe these movements, but they're sort of writhing. Um, and children with athetoid CP, it's common choreoathetosis. Um, and chorea is, I think, Greek or Latin for dancing. Um, and it's basically uncontrolled writhing movement that starts in the joint girdles or starts in the trunk, so shoulders and hips. Um, and it's just constant moving. And they'll move their shoulders and it's it's like the child's dancing, but not pleasantly. Um, and it will go in the mouth and it will go in the head and the, the body, the, if it's just one side of the body, then it will just be that one side. But generally speaking, it's quadriplegic, see cerebral palsy that, that the athetoids will be. And so it'll be all limbs will be moving. Um, the Commonly, these movements are present at rest, um, but they increase when a baby or a child tries to move out of them. So if they're trying to reach forward, their arms will, will be going in uncontrolled ways or their, their jaw and their mouth will be moving left and right. Um, Claire, did we have the video working? No, Nick, we don't have the video working, but we can put it up on our YouTube channel at a later date and people can refer to it there. Yeah, it's a lot easier to see this type of movement than than describe it. But this is a quite a rare form of cerebral palsy. Um, so it used to be more common when jaundice wasn't managed as well. That's because um, the bilirubin, so the, the bits that make the skin yellow in jaundice, would go around the body and then settle within the basal ganglia in the brain. And that blocks some of the, the firing of the nerves. Um, but with the more modern management of simply put phototherapy, so putting babies under UV light, that breaks down the bilirubin and stops it from taking place in the uh, from settling down in the brain. Um, so in some countries where they might not pick up the jaundice as quickly, um, they do have a higher incidence of athetoid CP. Ataxic CP is the next, and that's the least common form of cerebral palsy, and it literally means ataxia is without order. Um, and it's damaged to this cerebellum. And I think of the cerebellum like the filing cabinet of the brain. So it helps order our movement. And if we repeat movements, um, they, they, I think of it like it makes a file in the cerebellum, which the brain can refer to without necessarily thinking about. So walking, for example, the way that we walk is stored in the cerebellum. We don't necessarily think about it. We just simply walk. It never goes up to our higher motor function. So in the, in the top part of our brain, it just sits there. Children with ataxic cerebral palsy A have damage within the cerebellum itself, so can't make these files from forming, uh, so stop these files from actually being formed. But also, the movement itself is so uh, uncontrolled that they can't um, that they can't ever repeat movement enough to remember it, and it never becomes um, rote, as it were. Um, the children look clumsy and shaky. They really struggle to balance when reaching from objects. They will often overshoot. So if you're, <laughs> this is an old exercise that helps describe ataxia. If you put your index finger of your left hand um, up, so you point it with your left hand and hold it in front of your nose by about a foot and a half, two foot, then get your index finger of your right hand and you move it from your index finger of your left to your nose and you move it to and from those. A child with cerebral uh, with ataxic cerebral palsy, when they're reaching for that index finger on the left, would their arm would weigh from left to right, they would overshoot it, they'd miss it, and they'd keep coming backwards. And when going towards their nose, they'd miss their nose, they'd get in their mouth, they'd poke their cheek, that sort of thing. But children with what's commonly seen in subtaxic cerebral palsy is that they keep trying over and over. They don't get as frustrated as we would 
with the failing of the movement. So if they're trying to stand, they'll stand, they'll be really, really wobbly, they'll try and take a step, be really uncontrolled and fall over, and then they'll get back up and try again. And that's quite a nice thing to, for us to work with. However, it's really hard to watch because the kid just keeps trying and keeps failing. Um, and obviously, like any type of any form of cerebral palsy, it can vary in its severity and be quite mild and hard to notice the the, um, the reason behind it. So, the the milder ones will come will present as a clumsy child, and they might think that they've got developmental coordination delay or something like that. When in fact, it's a taxic cerebral palsy. The more serious ones are uh, more serious ones. The more serious children with a taxic cerebral palsy are chair bound and struggle to reach for objects. The treatment for a taxidermal palsy physio-wise is to give them something to hold on to, something far away which can help control that movement of one hand so they can reach for everyone. So it's all about stabilising. The European classification, so this is a form that's been coming out um, in Europe, and this is a nice way of simplifying the diagnosis. Um, and it's, it's useful for medics to refer to, but also I think for parents as well, as long as we understand all the terms involved, so especially tone. And that's a nice way if you're, if you're a parent of a child with cerebral palsy of looking at that and sort of thinking, um, is which, which type of cerebral palsy is my child? Um, I quite like that. I use that a lot with my um, students when explaining about cerebral palsy. However, to make things really complicated, children can present with mixed patterns. So they can have dystonic, spastic cerebral palsy um, and that makes diagnosis hard because um, obviously which one how do we refer to it i my preference would be to to be a diagnosis of uh, of saying mixed dystonic and spastic cerebral palsy however often a diagnosis might be given with what is the highest problem so more often than not it would be the dystonic side of the cerebral palsy and it would be dystonic spastic cerebral palsy with uh, sorry, dystonic quadriplegic cerebral palsy, and then in the notes underneath it might say has spasticity in certain muscle groups. But I, you know, if if it was me, I'd rather the uh, dystonic spastic cerebral palsy. Whew. So what do we look at? We know that early intervention is one of the main things that helps children with cerebral palsy in long-term outcomes um, because we can get those early building blocks in place. So being collaborative with all the professionals that would give help at that certain particular time. So it would be the physiotherapist, the occupational therapist, the speech and language therapist when that time comes um, to help develop normal movement patterns or typical movement patterns um, and preventing the child from being reliant on their tone to, to achieve. So, for example, a child with dystonic cerebral palsy might learn to roll by throwing the head backwards and just rolling backwards using gravity that's a destructive posture because they will then use that in every position and to communicate and they'll adopt that a destructive posture with a head back um, and that would be damaged long term that would damage the spine so we avoid those by giving the child teaching the child how to roll appropriately so it's all about um, developing early normal movement patterns but also giving parents an, uh, an insight in how to manage the tone of their child so um, if a child is standing with two legs straight and, and locked backwards, how can we avoid that? Yes, your child's standing, this is excellent. However, they're using their tones. How do we stop that? Well, we make it a little bit asymmetrical. So we might put a child's foot on a step or we might get them leaning forwards a bit and putting their weight through their hands. So they're not putting, uh, so, and that reduce, we know that that reduces tone. So sort of teaching parents, that, yeah, this is great that they're standing. However, they're using their tone a little bit. This is how we can affect tone. So play soft music in the background that might chill them out or you know, things like that and teaching parents about tone and how they can have an effect on it 
um, is very useful early on. But also explaining that weekly intervention isn't enough. Um, often, as if, and if I was a parent of a disabled child, I would definitely want as much intervention as possible, but seeing someone once a week isn't enough because children learn patterns of movement whenever they're playing. That's how they learn. So it's about explaining that when you're playing with a child, this is how you need to play. These are the things that you need to do as part of your daily routine, as part of, not necessarily routine, as part of your just handling of your child, because otherwise they will learn the ways that their body is sending them first you know that because if they're if they're not thinking about it and every time that they try and reach forward the head goes back they're going to head the head is going to go back so let's hold it forwards and let them learn to reach forwards properly then as we get older although the um long-term goal is obviously to improve quality of life and maximize a child's ability and inclusion um we know that the persistent effect that um tone has on the body structures means that their hips and their spine are at risk. In days gone by, you used to get a diagnosis and during the diagnosis, the consultant might say, children with cerebral palsy dislocate their hips, they get um, scoliosis, and they would explain to you that your child will get these postural deformities. However, research frequently do, um, in the UK, they're the new um, drivers for a thing called CPIPs to be done, which is a way of measuring joint ranges of movement. Or some trusts use just contracture screening, which is what we used to do until CPIPs came along. Um, and also there are other ways of monitoring a body shape, such as the Goldsmith measures, which monitor a child's um, posture. And if we know that with adequate monitoring, that if something starts to go wrong, then we can look at what we're doing whether it's enough to maintain this child's posture because if a hip starts to dislocate then what what else can you do do you need to put in an extra sleep system do you need to change the seat that they're in do you need to do anything different to prevent that from happening um, and the if it's done adequately we know that we can prevent these things we, we know that from experience um, locally we got the dislocated the rate of dislocated hips down to zero at one point so if children if all children with this uh, with cerebral palsy dislocate their hips like it used to be thought then we would have technically had no children with, with cerebral palsy and we've got hundreds so we know that we can prevent that so that must be highlighted to people and it must be iterated the way that's done is through 24-hour postural care so with the various equipment that we give we look at 24-hour postural care i'm not going to go on too much about it because that's a webinar in itself talking about postural care um but that that's what if you if you want to check ask your therapist if, if if they're doing or adequately doing 24 hour postural care but a lot of it is done with equipment so moving on to equipment so yeah why do we use it it's for 24 hour postural care largely um, but it's also to ensure that the child's inclusion is maximized um, and to ensure that they've got maximum access to their environment but also to ensure that they can develop typical or normal movement patterns um, as well. So, so the upsy, for example, does steps nicely. The um, play pack is great, or lucky like activity set when they're in for the early intervention side helps us support a child in position so they can develop typical movement patterns. The other common equipment that's used, so often orthotics are given. So this might be specialist footwear, it might be splints. All those sorts of things in the uk we don't give um helmets for head shape we will give them for safety reasons other things include wheelchairs postural supports so that's like your play packs or your early activity sets so to, so to ensure that a child's 
when they move, they do it in typical ways rather than relying on their tonal patterns. Um, standing frames are essential um, for a child's hips to develop because hips start very, very shallow um, and the top of the femur isn't connected to the shaft of it through anything but a bit of cartilage. And it's only through weight bearing that the hips develop. So we need to make sure that standing frames are given anywhere between one year and two year because that's one year and two years because that's generally when a child who is developing typically would start to stand. Um, so, that, so that's when we look at giving standing frames. Um, walking aids, depending on which ones you're, when, oh, sorry, depending when is appropriate to be given your child. Sleep systems are to maintain that child's posture during the long sleeps that they have, um, but also augmentative and alternative communication. So AAC to help a child communicate um, and iPads are becoming more and more popular in that sort of sense where possible. So talking about the um, medical interventions, generally speaking, they're used to, um, there are lots of medical interventions to help with epilepsy and all those sorts of things, but I wouldn't have much of a clue about that. So I'm going to talk about the ones that help control abnormal tone. It's a very specialist er specialised area of medicine. Um, locally, we have a spasticity management clinic in, um, well, it be Leeds, but a, a tertiary centre where children are referred to. Um, there are some which doctors might try first. So the back, the back defense is the first one I'm talking to. Doctors might try that before referring to a spasticity management clinic. But then when it gets to things like Botox or anything more serious or more high level, then they'll definitely, they should definitely refer to those specialist sort of centers which have access to all of the um, medical and mental available and we'll be able to compare the positives and negatives of each of them. The ones that help control tones. So we'll start off with baclofen, which can be given, ooh, next slide. Hello, Claire, is anyone there? I'll crack on, hopefully people can still hear me. Um, so baclofen is a medication that lowers a, lowers a child's overall muscle tone. It can be given um, for dystonic or spastic cerebral palsy, and it can be given orally or through a pump, which is stored underneath the skin um, and provides the baclofen directly into the spinal cord. <laughs> The oral tablet form, the positives of it is that it's quite simple. Um, obviously, you just you can just take it as a tablet. Um, it, the dosage is very easy to work out for doctors on the age and size of a child, and it can be increased and it can be played with to make sure that the child um, is getting the effect. It basically, the way it works is by it, it affects the way that the nerve will talk to a muscle and it means that more signals need to be sent to that nerve before the muscle will actually contract so it lowers the overall tone um, the oral form because it's digested affects the whole body which is a bit of a negative in that it can lower a child's head and trunk control if they're struggling with that um, opposed to just working on the legs if that's the area of difficulty i will refer to legs more than arms because i'm a physio um, the, it might also affect um, eye control. So um, children with squints, it can make their squint worse or it can, it can slow the child's ability to track an object, for example. But for children with global hypertonia, it's often very good. Um, and in the low doses, sometimes the children with just diplegic CP can get good, good outcomes from it. And it not, might not, it doesn't always affect the trunk and head control and eye control. Um, and if it is stopped, if there are those adverse effects, if it's stopped, it wears off. It's got a relatively short half-life, so it wears off and then the, the child will go back to normal. So at least it's, it's not a permanent thing. The intrathecal baclofen is obviously more serious um, because it's a, uh, administered straight into the spinal cord. 
it's only used for severe spasticity or dystonia, I believe, um, and a child will go to a specialist centre where they'll be given a test dose of baclofen to inject it straight into the spinal cord, and then the um, effects of that will be monitored to see whether they're appropriate for the intrathecal side of it. Then they will get the pump fitted and the dosage will be altered and played with. Generally speaking, baclofen is quite good because um, tolerance isn't built to it. So you can have it for many, many years without necessarily needing to increase the dosage unless you grow, which children have a tendency to do. Um, but the only one which some tolerance is um, built to is intrathecal. So sometimes they have to increase the dosage on that because the body actually builds a tolerance to it. Next is our Botox, which is um, a very strong toxin. It's pretty nasty stuff. It paralyzes the muscle. I can't imagine why I don't want to inject it in my face, but there we go. Um, and it, it paralyzes the muscle for a period of time. Generally speaking, after six months, the effects of the botulinum toxin will have worn off because the nerves that innovate the muscle, so the nerves that go to the muscle and tell it to switch on, will grow around the ones that have been blocked by the botulinum toxin. And that's essentially what it does. It blocks the end of that nerve. Um, it's very targeted to specific muscle groups. So if we have a child with very high tone in their calves, but not necessarily the rest of their legs, we can go straight to the calf and go boom, there you go. Um, and that will give us a window of opportunity where we can work on their walking pattern um, with appropriate orthotic support. Or if they've got tight muscles, we can stretch it during that period because the, the tone isn't always putting that muscle in that, um, in that activated state. So we can stretch it and that's really, really quite good. Uh, the injections are usually given um, ultrasound guided, so they'll actually see the muscle that they're injecting in via ultrasound. Um, and it's usually given with entonox, so gas and air for, for the anesthesia. Um, sometimes I'll apply a cream as well um, to, to numb the skin. There is a set dose for any particular size child and only a certain amount will have an effect on a muscle. So that means that they often have to um, prioritize muscle groups. So if the whole leg's affected, you, you might prioritize the calf, but then they've still got tone in the hamstrings and the, um, and the groin muscles and things like that. So often in those cases, the baclofen might be more appropriate, but, um, or they just prioritize which muscle groups are more, um, in, not important, but would have more of a positive effect or more of an outcome, better outcome. Next is orthopedic surgery. It should be seen as a last resort. It's not a primary treatment, definitely. Um, locally, if, if, if our children have to go for orthopedic surgery, we view that we have failed, and that is how it should be viewed, in my opinion, um, because we shouldn't rely on orthopedic surgery. Very, very minor surgery, like, um, we say minor surgery quite flippantly, like a, a, a snip to the gastro or to the, to the calf muscle, fair enough, but the, prop, the big surgery, which can be done such as on the bones and on the, and the soft tissue as well, we don't want our children to go through that, and it is preventable, so we should avoid it. Um, soft tissue released surgery, um, you might it might refer to a single event multi-level surgery, so SEMLs, um, and that's when lots of different muscle groups are released to try and um, allow a child to maybe stand up straighter. Um, and then as it gets more serious or older, if a child has a dislocated hip, um, then they would might need the bony surgery as well to try and get that that um, that bone back in the joint um, and they might actually completely disconnect the bone twist it reconnect it so that it's in a better position rehab after surgery is a very long process we've recently done a new policy at our place of work um, and it's you know two years of um, of surgery before uh, sorry two years of rehab before a child um, improves their function really um, and it's what's it six months 
Uh, is it six months to a year before a child actually returns to their pre-surgery strength, let alone actually getting stronger? Um, it's often the muscles to improve. So it's, it's a long process, but that needs a lot of commitment from family. So it shouldn't be considered if the child is, uh, or if the family are particularly non-compliant. Um, and the final bit of surgery that we're going to talk about is selective dorsal rhizotomy, which um, a couple of years ago got quite a lot of press over in the UK. Um, and it was a bit misrepresented because people were coming to us as a thinking it as a cure for their cerebral palsy. There is no cure for cerebral palsy. And selective dorsal rhizotomy is excellent for the specific group of children that it would work with. For all the others, it's not appropriate. Um, so for it to be appropriate is the child's age between three and 12. That's in the hope that orthopedic changes or body structure changes haven't taken place that early on. And also because things like walking patterns haven't been established. So a, walking, a child's walking pattern is quite established by the time they're seven to nine. So you want to, if you're going to do something like a selective dorsal rhizotomy, you want to do it before their walking patterns firmly established so that they can then develop a normal walking pattern. The children it works with is spastic diplegics, and that's because the way the way the surgery is, is it cuts 50 to 70 percent of the actual spinal cord roots, the, so the, the the bits that come out of the spine, out of your um, vertebrae, it cuts between 50 and 70 percent of those. So obviously less um, signals are being sent to the muscles, and it's done down in the lumbar region, so the lower part of the back, so it won't affect the arms. So that's why it has to be the spastic diplegic or unilateral legs affected more than arms for kids. Um, the process is now seen as safe. The, uh, the risks of it are persistent weakness in the legs and incontinence, but it's so well done now that those are quite rare. This is the group of, in studies have shown that the permanent reduction in limb tone in this child has a very positive outcome if the SDR is um, carried out early in that small population that is suitable for. I've treated two kids that have had this. Um, one in particular had very, very positive outcomes, but because she was a bit older, she needed quite a lot of orthopedic surgery, which has delayed her rehab. But saying that, she has done very, very well. And whereas previously would never have walked without any form, uh, would never have walked without a lot of support or with a walking aid is now able to walk without a walking aid very short distances she still needs that walking aid for any function of walking but we can walk across a lounge and that would have been unheard of before so for the children that it's appropriate for this is amazing but it is not for many it's for a very small part of the cerebral palsy population and i think that's enough of my rambling well, thank you so much, Nick. That was an awful lot for you to get through this evening. Um, we've, we've got a few questions coming in for you, so I'm going to take those first and give others who are on the line a chance to ask some as well. So um, we've got a question in from Catherine, um, and it's really about here in the UK. She's wondering, is it yeah. usually health visitors who would make referrals for preschool children causing concern? Um, she's worried that if this is the case, then there's potentially going to be a lot of children who can be missed. Um, it, it depends on where you are. It's a bit of a difficult question. I'll talk for locally for, for our area. Um, it's yes, it can be um, health, health visitors that you mentioned. Yes, health visitors. Health so, yeah, that's, so the health visitors can use the, over, I'm going to talk very UK, the Red Book um, and the two-year assessment and things like that for, to try and um, identify children who are delayed. And yes, they would be one sort of referral. Um, if there are concerns of delay, then um, children will often go to their GP and they might make the referral to us. And then we could refer on to consultants. 
um, or the GPs will frequently refer direct to a consultant who then refers to us. Um, the, the, the children, it depends on how accessible your services are. So, and it varies quite a lot. So our, our area, we accept referrals from parents. If they're particularly concerned, they can ring up and we'll, we can see them. Often we will direct them to a GP to eliminate any other additional problems. But if we think it's quite a classic delay, then we will see them, uh, we will accept that referral. Whereas across the border from where I'm based, the therapy team will only accept referrals from their community paediatricians. So a child has to go through the process of a GP to paediatrician to therapy. So it's quite different depending on where you live. Yes, children can get missed and it does depend on how good the person is. You're seeing, if I'm honest, and it's as, as simple as that, but there are um, nice guidelines and things like that which identify certain areas which increase the risk of cerebral palsy so a child that isn't sitting by the age of eight months or walking by 18 months should get a referral to someone to be seen because we know that's a high uh, a high indicator of problems whether that be serious or not but yeah the health visitors are a common form and they should identify those problems from their specific assessment so which they carry out at set times um, we've just got a question and Anna um, has asked, do, do, does she get a copy of the slides? Yes, Anna, once the webinar is complete, every, everybody who registered will get a complete copy of all of the slides. Um, Nick, I think that's you. I think that's you off the hook for this evening. I know you're going to try and stay on the line with us in case we get any more questions. If Nick has to dash off, um, don't worry, we'll take a note of all of the questions and he can answer those at a later stage. But thanks again, Nick, that was great. No problem. So I'm now going to hand you over to Becca, um, Becca Toll, she's special needs mum to Brielle. Hello Becca. Hi, hi everyone. Good to be here today. It's my first webinar so bear with me. So, um, so my name's Rebecca Toll or Becca. Um, I'm a proud mom to four little girls um, ages six to 12. Um, we live in Northern Ireland, um, near the sea. Um, originally, I've, I trained as an adult nurse here in Belfast, actually, and I've just started back to nursing now part-time. Um, but actually, um, with experience of, of having um, uh, my daughter, Brielle, now interested in going into uh, children with disability nursing. So hopefully that will come. Um, I absolutely love Firefly. and you know, their, their products and support. And I've enjoyed writing some blogs too for um, Firefly. Um, I know a lot of you have, you've found as parents that the online community and support is amazing, just like this webinar today. And uh, Nick, thank you so much for all that information on cerebral palsy, that, that was really great. I've learned a lot too. So my youngest, Brielle, um, she was born very prematurely um, just about 25 weeks and three days gestation. Uh, she struggled a lot um, and fought for her life in a hospital for her first six months. She's um, such a little fighter and she's uh, just a ray of sunshine in our lives. She, her three big sisters spoil her and just are so great with her and love her to bits. Um, Brielle has quite a list of disabilities and conditions, all relating to her premature birth, 
but despite that all she's really happy bubbly girl if you've ever met her you'll you'll see plenty of smiles and laughs um so when she at her three week um kind of ct scan after she was born very early and they saw quite a significant brain bleed which nick referred to um the medical term is the i ivh which is intraventricular hemorrhage um and it was you know quite significant so grade four um we didn't really know what what that would mean for her um going forward um but it was really difficult news to take obviously um what it would mean for her physical and mental function um so she's been diagnosed basically she has very low tone generalized low tone and um which is hypotonia with signs of ataxia so she would kind of fall more in the ataxic um cerebral palsy group that's her as a um, baby that was probably about a month after she was born she didn't wear clothes for a long time um and her granny knit that so brielle just turned six there this month um she can't stand or walk yet independently and we don't know if she ever will we get asked that all the time um will she ever be able to walk we don't know um but you can see her there in her yellow walker she loves that little walker and she flies up and down the the halls in her school um but she, she can get about herself now um we call it bottom shuffling or scooting about and she people um comment how quickly she just flies about the place um scooting on her bum um she sometimes get herself into a crawling position now at six years old but she mostly just scoots um she also has a little a cute little wheelchair for longer walks um and she actually she's yeah she her balance she doesn't have a balance she can stand for a few seconds and then fall over backwards or forwards but she can kind of walk pretty well holding her hand now um so some of the uh things we've used in the past for brielle but she's now outgrown but um you know if you have a little one who is, is a baby or just getting diagnosed possibly with cerebral palsy that i would really recommend is um the lucky standing frame that you saw picture nick showed pictures of the standing frames we had a cute pink standing frame um she used to wear afos or ankle foot orthotics um she wore compression orthotics like the vests and leggings and little t-shirts uh, she loved her little lucky early seating system we have a pink firefly upsy but she's now grown that and uh, she used to love scooting about on the firefly scoot so i'd really recommend looking into those three little ones there's her um walking holding my hand on the beach um sometimes she wants me to let go but she just fall over um that's her in a little new wheelchair so brielle was born um in washington state just outside of seattle we moved back here to the uk just over two years ago my husband's from here um just before brielle turned four so we were very fortunate to have excellent early intervention services in washington and brielle um obviously they knew she'd had a traumatic birth and um you know a global developmental delay with her prematurity and a lot of um you know uh, disabilities relating to that so she received 
really excellent physical therapy, occupational therapy, hydrotherapy, and, and others. Um, at the minute, she has ongoing therapy sessions at school and some home visits, mainly really with phys uh, you know, physiotherapists and her OT. Uh, she has speech and language and audiology and different things as well, um, and feeding therapy. Um, Brielle loves, still uses, you know, occasionally at and about and at Granny's, her Firefly go-to seat. And she loves balancing and bouncing on a roadie max. She's moved up from the little roadie. Um, so I'd recommend roadie if you haven't heard of roadie. It's like an inflatable little horse for therapy. And also she has like the gym balls and the, um, you know, noodles and that kind of thing. She, Brielle loves swimming. She loves um, swimming with her big sisters. And she's only now really starting to warm up to hydrotherapy sessions with physio. She used to just shut down and um, go to sleep. She didn't like, she didn't like it. It was intense, but now, now she's letting, she doesn't like to go prone. So she's letting them do that now. There's the girls um, in Glacier National Park there. Four girls, and um, Brielle, you can see her little implants. So another therapy we, that's been great is at school, they take them to go to the donkey sanctuary every couple of weeks. Um, and also we can go, um, we can go, you know, with her big sisters as well to a disability kind of drop in. Um, so it's been great for her balance and kind of core stability. Um, she got, she, she's learning to kind of trust the animal and trust the um, handlers as well. And her PT said it would really help her if we could get her into hippotherapy as well um, with horses. So she's never been on a horse yet, but we're hoping to do that soon for her core stability and balance. Um, so we're kind of trying to work on her um, to be able to stand a bit longer, you know, and, and doing different exercises on the ground with that as well. Um, another piece of equipment that she loves is swings, whether it be at the playground, um, but also we have a set of indoor swings um, by Playaway Toy Company. And I know it's available in the US and also here in the UK, um, which basically is like a bar that you can fit in your doorway. And then you can stick on all these different types of swings and like a, like a little horse balance swing. There's a platform swing. There's a net swing, a cocoon swing, um, you know, a baby bucket swing with the straps and even a strap swing. So it, the, there's so many. If you look up Playway Toy Company, you'll see that. Um, so it's been really great for her to work on her balance and also communication. Um, for her to ask for more or stop and go because she doesn't talk. Um, so it's been good to get her to kind of encourage her to ask and sign those things to us. And she just loves that that um, movement. Uh, it's a fun vestibular activity for her. So um, Brielle really loves going outdoors, as I said here, going on walks and playing at the playground. Exercise and activity are really important to her. And we we just try to make any kind of therapy or, or, you know, balance or whatever it is, stretching a fun, fun thing and make it play playful for her. And 
as a family, we're still learning how to best support um, our amazing little girl because, I mean, we, we realize there's still so much out there for us to try. And that's just a little family selfie um, taken about a month ago, maybe. Thank you so much, Becca, for sharing your story and telling us a bit more about Brielle. Um, we have a question yeah. that's come in here from you again from Catherine. Um, how did the compression leggings and vests help? How did they help Brielle? Okay. Um, they actually, they, they definitely did help her just kind of stabilize a bit and they gave her a bit more support. I think the compression kind of gives that, Nick would know more of the, the term, but it kind of gave her that input into the muscle to kind of wake up her tone. And it, it gave her that feeling of support, if you know what I mean. But um, as she's kind of grown, she, she did wear them for quite a while. Um, but now, she kind of, she, um, the consultant and physiotherapist feel she doesn't need them anymore. Okay, great, thank you. Um, I'm definitely going to have a look at that play away. That sounds like an interesting yeah. product. I'd like to have it in my home too. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I know, Becky, you're going to try and stay on the line as well, um, just in case we get any more questions in for you. And I'm now going to hand you over to our second mum, Dawn, who's uh, on the other side of the ocean in California. And Dawn is mum to Emmy. Thanks, Dawn. Hello, everybody. Um, it's just now noon here in California where I am, so I'm a little behind you all. Um, so I actually grew up in Kansas in the middle of the United States and before coming to California. Um, and I have a, a degree in journalism and I actually had started a, a career in public relations and opened my own PR business about four years before Emerson was born. And that's kind of key because having my own business and working from home has allowed me to keep working once Emerson was born. So I do continue to work full time from home while raising a little girl with CP. Um, there's, it's tough. It's tough to have a full time job and to, to keep up with all of her needs, but she is our one and only. So I'm able to juggle everything. Um, so Emerson was born full time at a, a full term rather at a hospital. Um, we went in after my water broke and we noticed meconium, which is the, the green, uh, it's a thick green. Um, it's actually when the child may be in distress and um, has a bowel movement. Um, so I was in labor for about 26 hours, uh, at what, which point Emerson crashed and uh, we had to go in for a crash C-section. And she was born um, without breathing and just a very faint heart rate. So she was resuscitated and um, she went without oxygen for several minutes, otherwise known as hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And the result was a diagnosis of CP. She wasn't actually diagnosed right then and there, um, but we knew that it was a strong possibility uh, because she did go without oxygen. And uh, a few days after she was born, an MRI showed that she did have damage bilaterally to her basal ganglia, which is a pretty common uh, injury spot for kids to end up having cerebral palsy. Uh, she was in the NICU for six weeks. She immediately had issues with breathing, feeding, seizures. She was very irritable and um, 
had had trouble calming herself um, and didn't sleep well. Uh, she had uh, unusual muscle tone. It was very low tone at times and very high tone at times. And also she wasn't responsive from a visual perspective. So um, she actually did pretty well um, coming back. There she is when she was first born. I think that was like her first or second day of life. So she, you can see with um, the oxygen and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, she received a G-tube at four weeks and two weeks later she was able to come home with us. So she came home and the first year was really, really difficult. She didn't sleep. She cried a lot. We had, um, we had to learn how to handle a newborn as first time parents, but with all the extra medical issues like suctioning, she couldn't handle her own secretions. She had to be monitored for breathing and her heart rate and all that sort of stuff. Um, we had to learn how to feed her by G-tube and she also required several medications. Um, she also started doing um, various therapies immediately. Um, in the United States, we have an early intervention program um, and they come into our home uh, to work with the children. And so she had, I think immediately she had physical therapy, occupational therapy, developmental therapy. Um, at some point she got vision therapy. And then we just obviously had, uh, as Nick mentioned, a lot of different doctors. We had specialists, including um, a GI doctor, a gastrointestinal doctor, and an ENT, which is an ear, nose, and throat doctor. We had a neurologist. We had her primary doctor, a vision doctor. Um, so we had a whole team of, of specialists. Fortunately, we live in a, a really large city, Los Angeles, and we have a lot of access to some really great doctors and a lot of different options in those specialist areas. So it's been good that we've had that. Um, I also really started from the very beginning looking into alternative therapies. So combining with the traditional stuff, also looking at other things like cranial sacral therapy, um, a therapy called Cuevas Medic, that's a kind of very intense physical therapy. Um, we did acupuncture, uh, massage, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and she wasn't meeting mild milestones. Um, she really has never met many milestones. And many, much of the time in the early days, it felt really like we were just struggling and trying to survive, but we did. <laughs> and the first three years is really a, a sprint. You're really encouraged for the first three years, um, that early start, it's kind of driven in like, those are the most important years to do as much as you can. And, and we certainly did that. Um, we did ev every therapy we could, you know, we were at various different therapy centers in addition to getting the home therapies that we were getting. Um, feeding therapy, that was another one that we did. And we also sought um, input from various different doctors. Um, I have always been one to kind of question doctors and um, you know, know that they're just human too and what they say is just one opinion. And so I like to consult lots of different places and, and just take their opinions as one of many and include that in kind of the bigger, broader scope of things. Um, our main goal from the beginning was really focusing on improving her physical capabilities and keeping her healthy. She did get sick a lot in the beginning. She's always had respiratory issues. So getting sick for her is, is life-threatening. 
and she spent, you know, her first few years, she did have to go into the hospital several times for extra support. Now we really have most of the support that we need at home. We have oxygen machine, we have a pulse ox monitor so we know if she's getting proper oxygen. Uh, we have a suction machine so we can help her clear her secretions. We have breathing treatments, which she gets twice a day, every day more when she's sick. We have a percussion vest um, system that helps also to keep her respiratory uh, condition clear. Um, we have a cough assist machine that can help her while she's, um, particularly if she's sick, to help her clear out her lungs. Um, and she continues to require um, a feeding pump. Uh, we use a feeding pump. She gets all of her nutrition and all of her medications through her G-tube. So um, now when she gets sick, it's getting easier and she's, you know, she may still need oxygen support and that sort of stuff, but we're capable of handling it in the home. One thing in the U.S. also, I think we have um, more support in terms of nursing help. So Emerson does have um, a nurse that uh, assists with her care um, during the weekdays and actually goes to school with her now. Um, this is actually, these are both pretty current photos. These are pictures of Emerson now within the last few months um, and shows you a little bit. We continue to do a lot of different therapies and we've really found the ones that work for Emerson. And one thing I would say is that all of our kids are so different. And I get questions all the time of, does this therapy work or does this therapy work? And really, I think our philosophy has always been just to try anything and everything we can and see what works for Emerson and two of her favorites and ones that both help her, but also that she enjoys are hippotherapy um, on the horse. Uh, she loves this one and she actually didn't love this one from the beginning. She, um, she, I tried, I tried hippotherapy when she was just two years old. I grew up riding horses and was really excited about this therapy for her and she was not ready for it. And we tried it for several years after that occasionally and she, she didn't like it and it, it wasn't a good therapy for her. And just this past year we tried again and she loved it. And so she's, she just turned six like Brielle, Brielle and now she suddenly is just in love with hippotherapy and it's probably one of the best therapies that we do for her. She has very low trunk tone and um, is still working on head control and this definitely helps her build that and she probably has her best head control and trunk control when she's on a horse and she just, yesterday, she rides horses on Wednesdays, and, which was yesterday, and she was at school and not doing her work um, and not very motivated and I told her nurse to tell her she had hippotherapy after school, but only if she did her work. And suddenly she snapped to and started doing her work. Um, also, aquatic therapy has been great for her. She's always loved the water. She loves her bath. We have a pool at home, so she's able, when it's warm enough, to, to use that. And we found a great physical therapist who specializes in aquatic therapy. So we do that on the weekends, and it's been a great therapy for her as well. Okay, so we're going to background a little, backtrack a little bit back. Um, so once we learned um, Emerson had this diagnosis of HIE um, and we knew she would probably end up having cerebral palsy, I was searching endlessly for um, support and information and wanting to know where to go and who could help and what was going to happen to my child and what to expect and all that sort of stuff. And fortunately, in this day and age, there's the internet and there's Facebook and both kind of became my lifeline. 
And um, for me, especially Facebook has been a place to connect with other parents. And um, I find them to be my most important resource. Um, when Emerson's having a problem and I go to a doctor and they don't necessarily have an answer or haven't experienced that, I go to other parents and there's almost always another parent who has experienced something similar or has found something that has worked for them. And so I kind of use, I, I, I go with a team approach and I look to my other parents as resources. And then I go consult with the doctors and say, hey, what about this? I've heard this could work or what, you know. And most of the doctors that we work with are very collaborative with me. And, you know, honestly, I've had a few doctors who weren't and um, I've, I've fired them and found new doctors who um, value my opinion because as a parent, we really know our children the best. And so um, I, I look for doctors to be willing to um, collaborate with me. Uh, we also have gone to lots of different locations to find doctors than certain, uh, one of Emerson's diagnosis, actually I should probably backtrack a little bit. So Emerson's full diagnosis is quadriplegic dystonic CP. And she is the most severe level of that diagnosis. So. Uh, her both her arms and legs are involved. Um, she's dystonic, as as Nick mentioned um, in his presentation. She uh, has twisting postures, and um, what, particularly when she's trying to actively do something or move, um, she often gets stuck and twisted into a posture, and it's very frustrating for her. Um, her tone is mostly low tone throughout her her trunk, her core, her neck. Um, but the tone in her arms and legs can be uh, high tone, particularly when she's trying to stand or she's trying to reach for something. Um, and so anyway, we have, she also has vision difficulties. Cortical vision impairment is her vision diagnosis. Um, she started out uh, with the most severe level of CVI. She really wasn't seeing anything. Um, some doctors would classify her as blind. She didn't track, she didn't look you in the eyes. And we worked really hard on her vision, including going to um, one of the CVI specialists in the world. Her name is Dr. Christine Roman Lancy, and she's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, she really can help identify exactly what level your child is at on the scale, the CVI scale, and help improve. So children with cortical vision impairment, it's not actually um, a vision disorder so much as it's uh, the, the when the child sees something, uh, the translation to the brain is not accurate. So they see things 